daddy didn't like trouble, but if it came along, everyone that knew him knew which side that he'd be on. He never was a hero for this county shining light, but you could always find him standing up for what he thought was right. He'd say, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for been better off or on the bigger house if daddy'd done more giving in or a little more backing down but we always had plenty just to live in his advice whatever you do today you'll have to sleep with tonight he'd say you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything They were in daddy's day But I still believe what makes a man Really has a chance You've got to stand for something Or you'll fall for anything You've got to be your own man Not a puppet on the string Never compromise what's right And uphold your family name Hello there, welcome to the show today. I'm going to be covering a lot. Um, the subject is going to be slavery, as in who is a slave? I would argue we are all slaves to the system. So before I get going, a couple things you might want to pay attention to. Um, today, um, there's a conflict at the border with Russia and Ukraine. Kind of suspicious, right? I wonder if they're planning on protecting those places where all those surrogates and donor eggs are coming from. I'm working on my embryo project. And it is hair-raising and horrifying, but not the subject for today. But when I saw that there were troops fake lining up on the Russian border, I had a few thoughts. I wonder if people like Putin, you know, old lad, I wonder, you know, he's a short, tiny little woman. I wonder if they get upset because they didn't get the growth hormones. <laughs> I would imagine there's a lot of infighting among these people. But anyway, so, yeah, they were saying in the news that Russia has such better weapons. Well, I would also like to point out 
they also have better computer graphics right now. So, And they have entrenched themselves more and more onto the Internet. They're so connected online, it proves my theory that psychopaths are horrible long-term thinkers. How are they going to toy with everybody else when they themselves are completely hooked up online? So, and how are they going to blow up that source of income coming out of Ukraine with those surrogates and those human embryos? Well, it could be a tricky situation, right? I don't think these people can think very long, but evil does get in the way, right? So, yeah, I doubt it. It's all orchestrated, and the puppets are all on stage. They're all also showing me how stupid they really are, right? Stupid pills all around. Yet I think the audience is also taking stupid pills to believe any of this stuff. So imagine managing this mob of psychopaths all jacked up on hormones. Speaking of psychopaths on hormones, um, Nancy Pelosi was back in the news because she's running for office again. And she said three times it was for the children, for the children, for the children. Take a look at Nancy, okay? And I'm also going to explain the line of succession here should anything happen to Biden. Um, Nancy is typical of a man who has taken too much estrogen, okay? I've given the fake men a hard time running things, but Nancy is an example of a man jacked up on estrogen running things. A couple of things you want to look for with Nancy. Look at that shiny skin she always has. Well, that shiny skin is almost slick-like, right? It's not sweat. It's like a slick look to their face. Well, that's from the estrogen. And also, she is barely holding that lace front wig on. So just take a look. I mean, she's had some good care over the years, okay? They are treating their own much better than they are these kids. So anyway, so let's talk about the line of succession here. You know, they're acting like Biden is senile saying things like, oh, the world's falling apart, and look, Biden is just out buying ice cream. <laughs> so, <clears throat> who's in line? And I am not inferring that I have any wishes for anything to happen against Francine Biden. But the reality is something might. So let's take a look. If something were to happen for Miss Biden, who would be next in charge? Well, number two would be, obviously, Kamala Harris. So that would put a man in charge after the woman. And then number three is Nancy Pelosi. Well, Nancy's 81 years old with that slick hormone face. How long do you think she's going to be good for? And then you have number four, a man named, or a woman, Patrick Leahy. Patrick is also 81 years old. Then, further in the line of succession, are cabinet members. Next, under that, <clears throat> would likely come Antony Blinken. He is the Secretary of State. And he's also the warmonger for Iraq. He was under, he's, he's really into wars, okay? <clears throat> Antony, A-N-T-O-N-Y, no H in that name. Antony. Blinken, funny thing, do what I do. When you see him on this screen, Hold your eyes open and only blink when he does. He really has that psychopath stare. So he would be number five. And number six in charge, none other than Janet Yellen. Yellen. Yellen about what? Yellen about robbing you of your money? Janet Yellen is also 
75 years old. So that gives you the line of succession. So should something happen to Josephine Biden? Go, Brandon. It would be Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Patrick Leahy, Anthony Binken, and Janet Yellen. That's a line of succession here. So hold on to your hats, kids. One thing I'd like to point out that they're also doing right now, you might want to be aware of, um, in this country we have the FDIC, which supposedly insures your money against banks and robbery from your bank. Well, you might want to look for this one deal they have going on now. Um, first of all, if you trust the FDIC, then you need to work out another plan because that's your first mistake, okay? So... They have been doing a new trick, and this new trick, I will tell you the words for it, and then you will need to go look for yourself. When banks get into trouble, they usually get bailed out, right? O-U-T, out, bailed out. Well, they have this, they have this thing called bail-ins. What does bail-ins mean? Well, bail-ins is very handy for them to have, because in the event the bank does not get bailed out for all their bad, crooked deeds. They will use this bail-in method. What does bail-in mean? Well, they actually will put the bank depositors on the hook for their mistakes by this bail-in thing, okay? Um, the bail-in is a... Um, Following a bank crisis, um, oh, okay, let me read this here. Following an actual bank crisis where global systematically import banks um, are rendered insolvent by bad derivative bets or otherwise, right? They have bank bail-ins, okay? They did this in um, Greece. I remember they had done this in Greece. When, when Greece got into trouble and they, they didn't let them get bailed out. What Greece did was bail-ins. They essentially took depositors' money and grabbed part of it as part of this bail-in. So they have ways to grab your money, and they do like to signal what's ahead. So now they're signaling that bail-ins are on the, on the charts now. So they have already done bail-ins in Cyprus and Spain. That happened back during Greece's time, right, when they were when Greece was in trouble. And they happened recently, bail-ins happened recently in Italy and Portugal. So you might want to, they're not really overly announcing the bail-ins, but you might want to look at your bank's clauses. And really, if you're still trusting your bank, then you might want to look even further at a whole bunch of other issues because all this stuff with the stock market going on now, well, most people in this country are not aware that their retirement funds are tied to the stock market. So the stock market crashing not only impacts a lot of people that are stockholders willingly, it impacts people who have retirement funds. And those retirement funds are tied to the stock market. Um, the latest available government data I could find from the Federal Reserve was from 2016. It shows a relatively small share of American families, 14%, are directly invested in individual stocks. But a majority 
52% have some market investment, mostly from owning retirement accounts, such as 401ks. A steep drop in the stock market can be particularly devastating to retirees who have few options to replace their depleted life savings. So, yeah, so, um, you know, they've all gotten their money out of the market before they crash it. So, buyer beware. So, anyway, so many impacts of fear, right? I'm telling you this information to remove fears, not to create fears, okay? The impact of fear is getting frozen, fear of the unknown. There is no reason for any of us to fear anything unless we have become part of the system. That I would be afraid of if I had been doing their bidding, and I'll talk about that more later here. This is going to be a very long show because I'm sharing with you my slavery file. Slavery, when we think of slavery, we think of blacks coming over from Africa slavery, right? Well, that is really not the true definition of what slavery is, so I'll get to that. So, They exhibit clear and distinct patterns of how they have used us in this process. They wouldn't have gotten here without the rest of us complying. And I say the rest of us because we all have complied at some point or we would not be here right now, okay? They couldn't have gotten here without turning us against each other to help them. That is 100% how it has all worked. I always look for patterns, and that pattern is so clear that it's hard to ignore it, okay? Where is this going, and how did we get here? It took a lot of looking the other way. It took a lot of turning on each other along the way. So, this show is going to be about slavery, the kind we are all in. Anyone who stepped foot on the soil of this country, the United States, is indeed a slave. My grandparents were slaves. I have been a slave. My parents, all slaves. And we are white, okay? At the end, I'll say more, but for now, let's look at how slavery works. Because at the end, I have some very distinct plans for how I'm going to be sharing my research in the future. So you'll have to stay for that. The segments will be divided up. At the beginning of each segment, I'll say what it's going to be about. It was hard to take this huge file and figure out how to communicate it. So, a couple things have happened that have changed my research drastically in the last week, okay? I now know who they are. 99.9% sure who they are, okay? They are, I've been saying they are gypsies, they are Gypsies that were hiding as Jews, right? Well, no. They are, they are someone else with dark skin, and they have been hiding as gypsies and Jews, okay? I've been connecting those dots, and they're not who anyone has guessed, okay? So, how do you hide if you've got dark skin? Well, you hide under white skin. So it gets pretty complex here. So let me try to just today focus on the slavery aspect. Um, and so much has changed because I have files about their psychological manipulation from where I left off the last show. I was talking about these ages of enlightenment. Well, I still need to get all those files, but it will make it more interesting now that I have a much better idea of who they are, okay? 
So, yeah, pretty fancy trick. You're dark-skinned, and you're hiding as white-skinned gypsies and Jews. It all makes perfect sense now. So, and while everybody was thinking about those others from Africa were getting hauled here and changed, who ended up wearing the chains? The others is how this happened. That thing I keep running across, how this concept of the others allowed for the destruction of all of us. We turned away from each other to make this all happen. The truth is very clear to me now. There's lots to consider. Magic and manipulation has been the name of their game, enacted by fear. No need for massive weapons. Just pretend they have them turned on us. Then let fear turn others on the others. Full circle. Helping them destroy us along the way. Why are we here? Are we here to defeat each other or take a stand for the truth? Slavery in the United States was a legal institution of human chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is a form when you're bought and sold. But I'm arguing slavery as one entire issue, okay? It was viewed as comprising the enslavement primarily of Africans and African Americans that existed in the United States of America from its founding in 1776 until the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. So by all reality, supposedly, 1776, slavery came in. 1865, slavery went goodbye. Slavery was established throughout European colonization of the Americas. It actually, they supposedly, from 1526, during early colonial days, it was practiced in Britain's colonies, including the 13 colonies which formed the United States. Under the law, that was a law from 1776 until 1865, they let it go on for almost 90 years, an enslaved person was treated as property and could be bought, sold, or given away. Slavery lasted in about half of the United States until 1865. As an economic system, slavery was largely replaced by sharecropping and convict leasing. Convict leasing replaced slavery, okay? And what do we have going on right now with these embryos I'm researching? Well, embryos are being handed out like candy all over this country right now. There is a process that anybody can get an embryo, which is a live human baby, okay? Those babies, the laws, and go look at my show that I did about embryos. I, I recorded from their own lips the laws about embryos. Embryos are treated as property, okay? Anybody can get an embryo. Don't even need an attorney involved because it is a property transaction. If that does not say slavery to you, it certainly says it to me. So yeah, so slavery has been a long, long, long process here. And try, um, slavery is a couple of other issues. I've talked about debt slavery. Go look for that show. It's right in the title, Debt Slavery. Slavery is the state of a person who is held in forced servitude. 
or a situation or practice in which people are entrapped as by debt and exploited, all forms of slavery. So, this country has been an active crime scene for me to try to research. It is all about slavery in action. Why? Well, this, this, today I'm going to be talking about different aspects of slavery, how the census in this country has been manipulated to hide the slavery. Who are all the slaves, both from Africa and Europe that landed here? They have a complex story to tell. Today I'll cover the many issues and deception used along the way. How did people enter this slave camp called the United States? Once anyone steps foot on this country, they are, in fact, slaves of one form or another. Right now on Facebook, there is open trade of human embryos. Shouldn't we think of that as early entry into slavehood? They're also implanting defective embryos. Why is that? Big questions I have to sort out. Is it a rush to get more of them amongst our population? Yeah, I, I have a lot of reasons to believe that because they're, you, you manipulate the embryo, you manipulate the child, okay? How much more slave-like than actually actual embryos? We think of slavery as people already born, but it is more than that, much more than that. Those embryos are slaves. They are considered property, okay? So today I will cover a few aspects that I've been looking into that has formed my thoughts about what is slavery. And these are just my thoughts about what I'm seeing as far as slavery. I'm going to be breaking it into parts. Some of the parts will have very small amounts of data. I just had to go through my data and figure out where to break it up because it's a lot. Because I've been looking at how women walking down the street in this country became slaves to the system. Did the Europeans pay for their passage before getting on the boats? Did the Africans settle up when they arrived here? I mean, it's all possible that the slavery as we saw it was not exactly correct. And also that brings up a million other questions. Australia got settled as part of the New World, okay? They say that a lot of prisoners got shipped to Australia. Well, I don't know. Were those boatloads of prisoners really early European slaves that got exported and called prisoners? So yeah, a slave to me could also be a prisoner. So yeah, so we everybody arrived from boats to this country, okay? And that's where it gets very interesting here. Everybody arrived by boats. Some black people arrived as slaves from Africa into the port of Louisiana. And the other side of the country, white Europeans arrived. Now, I figured out that we had two major ports of entry here. We had the East Coast that we've been talking about, Ellis Island. We have all of the people there coming in, primarily white Europeans. Well, where did all those black slaves supposedly come from? Well, they came in through Louisiana, another major port of this country, which also ties into the research I've been doing as far as the Dick's money, the whole deal with Louisiana. So it's interesting. 
That's why in the last week, my entire research has shifted because of being able to identify who they are and then all of this slave business. So did they bring in these black slaves to cover for the fact that they are black themselves? And the slave story could have covered anyone finding black people in their midst. So if they're really dark-skinned, which I 99.9% believe, okay, did they bring in people from Africa to mix things up? So then if people saw black people, they wouldn't know it was them. They would think it was these people that came in from Africa. And there's also this theory of white slavery coming out of the Ottoman Empire. Well, the Ottoman Empire just ended in 1920s, okay? There are a lot of things I need to look for as far as the theory of white slavery. So if these people are who they I think they are, well, the theory of white slavery becomes fascinating to me because the Ottoman Empire was Turkey. Turkey happened right before Weimar. So white slavery is another option to consider. Did they get rid of some of their black skin by bringing in white slavery into the picture. Lots of things to talk about. So anyway, so for today, I'll be talking about this plan they had in this country called the American Plan. Well, interesting thing. Another, I'd like to give a little example of what was going on in the rest of the world is what happened to women in Ireland during this time that I view as a form of slavery. So, you know, I used to think, and I used to wonder, I don't know why I've thought this for a long time, I wondered about blacks being brought into slaves to get the black population here to hide who they really are. White slaves could be people from Australia they call prisoners. People shipped to the USA from Europe also could be a mix of maybe releases from early nut wars. A million places to consider. And there's also a reason why all these records got burned, okay? And I'll be covering that in a segment today, all these suspicious lack of records for all this. All options and avenues are possible. Let's not lose sight of who they are. They dumped white people in on the East Coast and the blacks in through Louisiana. Doesn't take rocket science to feel how this deal got rolling along. I don't think all those records ever really got taken to even got burnt. Like, I don't think they actually developed all of these records to begin with, okay? I w you have to question everything, okay? Maybe some people, so let's not make assumptions here. Maybe some people were jotting down notes, okay? Did people jot down a few things? Yeah, probably. But I don't believe there was any mass organization of anything that needed to get burned, but things did get burned, and what were those things? Well, I will discuss those things in more detail today about why I would say that, you know, we can't assume they had records, and we, they said the records got burned, but we can't make the leap that they actually had records to begin with. You see what I mean? When you're researching what evil people are up to, you don't start making assumptions along the way. So anyway, so you want to stick around to the end because of this radical change in my research has completely changed how I will be sharing my research. So I will talk about that at the end. So let's get moving on this issue of these different categories of slavery. And I'll be talking more about New Orleans, all the records getting burned, 
and these other cases. So hang on to your hat. Here we go, kids. Let's talk about New Orleans, give you a little bit of background. Fascinating history there. You might also want to look at the show I did about Dick's D-I-X money. Their favorite trick, money, intersected around New Orleans. So anyway, so look at that show. Money and magic is what drives this boat for these people. So... What religious group supposedly settled in New Orleans? Well, this group called the Ursulines, Capuchins, and the Jesuits. People are now really trying to push that the Jesuits are behind all of this. That's a That was a really pretty good cover story. I fell for it for a long time. But anyway, so all those groups owned plantations and slaves in addition to their property in New Orleans. Although most settlers in New Orleans were of, of the Catholic faith, a few were Protestants, and some were Sephardic Jews. Chacotwa, C-H-O-C-T-A-W, was the original name for New Orleans, meaning land of many tongues. Its cosmopolitanism predates European conquest, competition, immigration, and migration. Africans were enslaved and freed there from the continent, and the Upper South and the Caribbean have also been coming and going for hundreds of years. So there was a huge influx into New Orleans, people of different languages, different colors, different traditions, okay? The great majority of the immigrants from Europe were carried by British, German, and American vessels. And the business was managed by the agents of commercial houses in the North Sea ports. Those North Sea ports where a lot of this activity happened. And this is what I know now, okay? doesn't mean what I'll know in the future, but as of right now, I believe that the majority of the transactions of people and things came from the North Sea ports, Liverpool, London, and New York. So, and there's different ways that these main transport lines, so it wasn't like they were flying in from all directions, okay? In the early 1800s, the defeated French army and Haitian refugees and both white and people of color migrated to Cuba or Louisiana. New Orleans became the first republic in the Western Hemisphere led by blacks. So there were more blacks in the Western Hemisphere in New Orleans, okay? In 1809, an estimated 2,731 whites 3,101 to free people of color, and 3,000 enslaved. So we had a mix of whites, 2,700, free people of color, 3,100, and enslaved refugees, 3,000. 
they immigrated to New Orleans from Haiti. So we had a large influx of blacks, enslaved people, and whites who came in from Haiti via Louisiana. So there was an Immigration Act of 1891. And the Immigration Act of 1891 introduced further documentation as it required that information be collected among immigrants entering the United States overland from Canada and Mexico. So up until 1891, people were pretty much roaming into this country from Canada and Mexico. I used to see a large population of white people in Mexico. I believe a lot of them are Germans. And what happened was a lot of people came into this country via Canada and Mexico. So that's where you start to also mix up populations, right? So yeah, so then um, when people cross national borders during the, their migration, they are called migrants or immigrants, okay? That's from the Latin word wanderer from the perspective of the destination country. So we're looking at migration, okay? And these people are immigrants to this country being the United States. So when they're leaving their country, they're all they're, they're called immigrants or co-immigrants, but we don't need to get too involved in that. We're talking about the mass movement of people, however they want to define it. So what are the causes and effects of immigration? The immigration is a big social problem. People immigrate because they want to have jobs, to run from dangerous situations, or to have a better education. Causes of immigration. Some people are forced to move due to a conflict or to escape persecution or prejudice. So, Louisiana ports around New Orleans. In 1803, the United States supposedly bought the Louisiana Territory from France. From 1800 to 1860, there were 17 new states. In the 1800s, millions of immigrants came from other countries. This country had two main ports, the North and the South. They had different cultures. They had different economies. And all of this created a whole bunch of different issues between the North and the South, okay? I've already talked about the main ports in the North, Ellis Island. Let's look at the Southern ports. The Southern ports... The most commonly used southern ports of arrival were New Orleans, Louisiana, excuse me. The most common, there were two common southern ports. One was New Orleans in Louisiana, and the other was Galveston, Texas. So Galveston, Texas, and New Orleans, two main points of entry for this country. Well, so what happened to Galveston? Well, Galveston, I connected because Galveston was only a port of entry up until 1900. So essentially from 1800 to 1900, the port at Galveston was in play. Well, 
What happened to the port of Galveston? Well, that's a very interesting story, and I'll get into Galveston now, and then we'll continue on with New Orleans next. Galveston, highly developed place. I'm talking highly developed place. It was like the um, key company or country or state of all of Texas, Galveston had it all, okay? In that era, Galveston was well built up. It had a huge population of people. So, I think some of these things happen because they either decide they don't want to do them anymore or they're maybe they're mad at the person who did something there and it's about revenge, but there's a lot of reasons why these things have to happen to in their minds, right? So Galveston is buzzing along, doing terrific by all measures, okay? Galveston had the top economy in the state of Texas. Galveston was a huge deal, okay? So, and up until the 1900s, it was a main port of entry, okay? In 1900, Galveston had a hurricane, also known as the Great Galveston Hurricane and the Galveston Flood. It is interesting, interesting stuff. So I'm only going to cover the major points here. So Galveston was known the regional area, and it's also called the Great Storm of 1900, okay? It was the deadliest natural disaster in the United States history and the fifth deadliest hurricane since Hurricane Mitch. So I think... Galveston was a huge deal, okay. The city of Galveston was formally founded in 1839. Of course, it was founded after all those people got brought in to their ports, right? See how this is working out? All this immigration for that hundred years or so coming into Galveston gets all built up, and then this major storm happens, right? So what happened was in 1839... Galveston had weathered numerous storms, all of which the city had survived. In the late 19th century, Galveston was a boomtown, with the population increasing from 29,000 people in 1890 to 37,000 people in 1900. So it went from 29,000. So this is not, we're only talking a population increase of 10,000 people, okay? The city was the fourth largest municipality in terms of population in the state of Texas. In 1900, Galveston had among the highest per capita income rates in the United States. Galveston had many ornate business buildings in a downtown section called The Strand, which was considered the Wall Street of the Southwest. The city's position on the National Harbor of Galveston Bay along the Gulf of Mexico made it the center of trade in Texas and one of the busiest ports in the nation. With this prosperity came a sense of complacency as residents believed any future storms would be no worse than previous events. In fact, Isaac Klein, director of the Weather Bureau of Galveston's office, wrote an 1891 article 
saying that it would be impossible for a hurricane or significant strength to strike Galveston Island. In 1981, this guy is saying, impossible, won't strike Galveston. Well, it struck in 1900, so that closed down the import of people through Galveston, Texas. Next, we will move on to the other movement of people, so here we go. segment will be about early recorded history of people selling other people for the benefit of the psychopaths in charge. What do I mean by this? This is, of course, what I believe right now. Hmm. I believe that there is a strong possibility that the bulk of the black slaves came from Nigeria. I also think that there were Nigerian middlemen who moved to the interior where they captured other Nigerians who belonged to other communities, people taking other people to benefit the psychopaths in charge. I think this is a sign of our early compliance, along with, of course, the same deal happened with the people coming from Europe, people turning on other people. So um, they said that the middlemen also purchased many of the slaves from the people in the interior. Many Nigerian middlemen began to depend totally on the slave trade and neglected every other business and occupation. The result was that when the trade was abolished, supposedly, by England in 1807, these Nigerians began to protest. As years went by and the trade collapsed, such Nigerians lost their source of income and became impoverished. That, my friends, is the full cycle of how it works. They had to engage us to go against the rest of us to benefit them. And in the end, it backs up my theory that psychopaths have no sense of loyalty. They will cuddle up next to you and whisper in your ear all day long. It is to manipulate people to go against other people. And unfortunately, the glimmer of the gold, the money, that shiny object, that magician trick, that is at the root of all of this. How did this happen? Well, there's several theories, okay? How could Africans have sold other Africans into slavery? Well, I think one of the answers is this. African slaveholders, the people capturing the other Africans to, in fact, put them up for sale. So first, they're the actual slaveholders of other Africans, right? Because they have supposedly captured them. They did not think of themselves or their slaves as Africans. 
Instead, they thought of themselves as Edo or Sogari and members of another group. So one group saw the other group. See how this other things works, right? So these people, these Songhai people, which they say were the ones who captured the Nigerians, did not relate to them. They thought of their slaves as foreigners or inferiors. In the same way, the Spanish, the French, and the English could massacre each other in bloody wars because they thought of themselves as Spanish. They saw themselves as Spanish, French, or English rather than Europeans. That is the concept I keep talking about, the concept of how the others came into play and was the weapon that they used, not machine guns, not cops on every corner, other people like us. The slave system of the South is superior to the wage slavery of the North. So they're saying that the South, their slave salaries was better than the North. Slavery was entwined the economic interests of master and slave. It eliminates the unavoidable conflict that existed between labor and capital under the wage system. So slavery, early slavery, took away the need to pay wages like the rest of the slaves were being pushed into, right? The amount of money a master invested in his slaves made it economically unfeasible to mistreat them or ignore their working and living conditions. Yes, you have to take a look because, for example, and do not take this that I'm minimizing anything. You look at plantations where slaves may or may not have been raised. Look at the shacks which still exist in Appalachia. So there were just different sets of conditions, okay? The black people moved on to plantations and were owned by their slave masters. That was actually a clearer concept than most had. I don't believe my grandparents thought of themselves as slaves, right? So the blacks came in as slaves. They were given housing and medical care and stuff under these supposed plantations, right? So it was just different amounts and different ways of torture, okay? So so they say that um, I also believe that American cities have ghettos, not because of America, but because the nature of classism is paired with economic policy. It's also paired with social policy. It's also paired with the human condition. And it's paired with the nature of the right or the left. So we have been divided and sliced. So American ghettos are really the same thing that people in Appalachia have always lived in, okay? so. We've always had this division between races and oppression. A person may be oppressed without creating a deep South slave state condition. Even in the 1850s, at the height of slavery, a time when the North had outlawed outlawed slavery, excuse me, we had a right-wing anti-immigrant factions fighting against factions. They were fighting in poor urban ghettos. So we had slavery going on in the South. We had these people in urban ghettos 
where everybody concerned was lucky to have a job even with wage slavery. So one group felt like they were lucky to have jobs because they weren't technically connected with some plantation, right? So that's what we have to consider in this big complex issue is that it was all a matter of slavery. Some people were brought here and they were given parcels of land. They became slaves to the bank. That would be my family. Other people were brought into New Orleans on boats from Haiti or Africa. They became part of the cheap labor initial part of the slavery. You will have to explain to me how any that thing that we're doing right now is more advanced than what they were doing back then. They are, in fact, one-trick ponies. So let me pick up on the other end about some implications of slavery and how early medical research came involved here. Okay, let's talk about early medical experiments in relationship to slaves. I will not be discussing any kind of overly graphic details. I will give you the names to look for yourself. So, how did the early experiments and medical knowledge come from? Well, it came from a person named James Marion Sims, S-I-M-S, born January 25th, 1813, died November 13, 1883. He or she was an American physician, and yes, I, I'm not joking, it's a she, okay, it's a transgender. He was an American physician in the field of surgery. Sims was also known as the father of modern gynecology, but also was a controversial figure due to the ethical questions raised by how he developed his techniques. I will not describe his techniques. He's very easy to find online. He... Uh, <coughs> invented the early speculum, which was used for women, and did a lot of other things. So, anyways, we'll move along from that. Um, some medical ethicists said, one would be hard-pressed to find a more controversial figure in the history of medicine. So, Sims basically developed his surgical techniques by operating without anesthesia on enslaved black women. So yeah, it was basically early experimentation on women and children. So Sims was also a vol voluminous writer. He wrote a lot and his published reports on his medical experiments together with his own 471 page autobiography have been the main source of knowledge about him and his career. His positive self-presentation has, 
in the late 20th and early 21st century been subject of revision. So yes, he praised himself and his work, and up until recently, people have been taking another look. So, um, because Sims' research was conducted on enslaved black women without anesthesia, medical ethicists, historians, and others say the use of enslaved black bodies as medical tests, the subjects fall into a long ethical history. So yes, this history includes the early experiments on syphilis and many other horrors along the way, but we're focusing today on Sims. Critics say Sims cared more about the experiments than in providing therapeutic treatment and that he caused untold suffering by operating under the racist notion that black people did not feel pain. His defenders say the southern-born slaveholder was simply a man of his time for whom the end justified the means, and that enslaved women with this condition were likely to have wanted the treatment badly enough that they would have agreed to take part in his experiments. But history never recorded their voices or any kind of consent. The consent came from their owners, who had a strong financial interest in their recovery. But that was the only legal requirement at the time. So what happened was, was that Sims built his reputation among rich white plantation owners by treating their enslaved workers. So yeah, um, they feel that he, Sims built an eight-person hospital at the heart of the trading district in Montgomery. While most health care took place on the plantations during that time, some stubborn cases were brought to physicians like Sims who patched up enslaved workers so they could produce and reproduce for their masters again. Otherwise, they were useless to their owners. Like most doctors in the 19th century, Sims originally had little interest in treating female patients, and he had no specific gynecological training. Indeed, examining and treating female organs was wildly considered offensive and unsavory at that time. But his interest in treating women changed when he was asked to help a patient who had fallen off a horse and was suffering from pelvic and back pain. If the patient's owners provided clothing and paid taxes, Sims effectively took temporary ownership of the women until their treatment was completed. He later reflected his autobiography called The Story of My Life on the advantages he found to working on people that were essentially his property. He said, there was never a time that I could not, at any day, have had a subject for operation. According to Sims, this was the most memorable time of his life. So he always had a flow of people to study for his operations. Before and after his gynecological experiments, he also tested surgical treatments on enslaved black children in an effort to treat this one disease called neonatal 
tetanus with little to no success. Sims also believed that African Americans were less intelligent than white people and thought it was because their skulls grew too quickly around their brain. He would operate on African American children using a shoemaker's tool to pry. Oh, I'll finish that. In the 1850s, Sims moved to New York and opened his first ever women's hospital. So, 1850, he opened the first women's hospital in this country, where he continued testing controversial medical treatments on his patients. When any of Sims' patients died, the blame, according to him, lay squarely with the sloth and ignorance of their mothers and the black midwives who attended them. He did not believe anything was wrong with his methods. It is a recognized, it is a recognition some see as overdue. In a 1941 paper titled The Negro's Contribution to Surgery, it was published in the Journal of the National Medical Association. This Dr. Kenny talked about the experiments with the Tuskegee Institute, and he was considered the black dermatology expert. He said, I suggest that a monument be raised and dedicated to the nameless Negroes who have contributed so much to surgery by the guinea pig route. So 1941, they acknowledged what had started 90 years before that in 1850. So, talk about different methods of slavery. Okay, let's talk about early immigration and census records in this country and see where all of that stands. Now, keep in mind that this is information that I know right now. Long history of population census in this country. They say the first federal population census was taken in 1790 and has been taken every 10 years since that point. There is this thing also, there is a 72-year restriction on access to those census records. So that means the most recent year available for census records is from 1940. The 1950 census will be released in 2022. So this year, the 1950 census, because of this 12-year, 12-year, 72-year delay, will be released. The National Archives has the census schedules on microfilm available from 1790 to 1940 and most have now been digitized by their digitization partners. Let me guess, that's probably Ancestry.com and all of them, right? Family researchers generally find it most helpful to begin with the most current 
census and work backwards as a strategy for locating people in earlier generations. These census things have a lot of tips for how to dig through all of this data. Records from the 1950 to the 2010 census can only be obtained by the person named in the record or their heir after submitting this form. Kind of complicated to get census data, it appears to me, right? And what happened with some of these census records? Well, we had that 1890 census fire that I talked about on Ellis Island. Between 1896 and 1921, thousands of family history researchers cursed the loss of almost the entire 1890 U.S. census. After learning of its destruction due to a fire nearly a century ago, genealogists quickly began to skip that year in their record searches, turning instead to city directories, tax records, and other substitutions that might name an ancestor during those key years between 1880 and 1900s. The missing 1890 census isn't as simple as it was lost in a fire. Actually, different parts of the census burned in not one, but two fires. After the second and more de devastating fire, the surviving waterlogged records were left neglected, then quietly destroyed years later by government administrators. The ill-fated 1890 census was taken at a critical time in U.S. history. The population had topped 50 million people in 1880. So, and it climbed another 25% the following year. So, pretty heavy movement of people, I would say, up until 1890. Foreign-born residency jumped a third during those years. Inside the country, a restless population moved westward and into urban centers. The 1890 census captured a nation in motion. It also collected the individual information of unprecedented genealogical value. For the first time in 1890 census, each family got an entire census form to itself. Race was reported in more detail. Questions appeared about home and farm ownership. English language proficiency, immigration, and naturalization were all part of the questionnaire. Civil War veterans and their spouses were noted. Questions about a woman's childbearing history first appeared. Additional schedules captured even more about people in special categories. They also categorized people as paupers, criminals, and the recently deceased. And what a shame it all got burned up. By 1896, the Census Bureau had prepared statistical reports. Then a disaster occurred. One almost nobody remembers now because future events would overshadow it. A fire that March, this was March of 1896, 
badly damaged, mainly of the special schedules. It was a loss, but probably wasn't considered tragic. After all, statistics had been gathered up over the population. They said the statistics were still left intact. So what happened to those statistics that were left intact? Well, over the next 25 years, many Americans lobbied for the construction of a secure facility for federal records. But there was no National Archives. The 1890 census was stacked neatly on pine shelves just outside an archival vault in the basement of the Commerce Building in Washington, D.C. And that led up to the 1921 fire. These things that were neatly stacked there in Washington, D.C. So they stack all this stuff, and this was before the National Archives, okay? So we're presuming they're stacking these things there, right? That is a pretty big leap of faith at this point, to presume they even had all these records to stack up, right? What happened? Well, late in the afternoon of January the 19th, 1921, Commerce Building Watchmen reported smoke emerging from pipes. They traced the source to the basement, of course, where everything had been stacked up, right? When the fire department arrived a half hour later, they first evacuated employees from the top floors. By that time, intensifying smoke blocked access to the basement. Thousands of bystanders watched fire crews punch holes in the concrete floors and pour streams of water into the basement. Firemen continued to deluge for 45 minutes after the fire had gone out. Then they opened the windows to diffuse the smoke and went home. So as a result of this fire, 1921, everybody was blocked from going to the basement. So these clever firemen punched holes in the concrete floors. Can't imagine how that would have happened, right? These were people still supposedly riding around on horses and buggies, so they're punching these holes in the concrete floors. They poured tons of water into the basement. They poured water for 45 minutes until the fire had gone out. Then they opened the windows, <clears throat> and then they went home. Anxious census officials had to wait several days for insurance inspectors to do their jobs before they could access the scene of the fire. Meanwhile, census books that hadn't burned sat in sooty puddles on charred shelves. When officials finally tallied the damage, they found almost a quarter of the volumes had burned, another half were scorched, sodden and smoke damaged, with ink running down pages and sticking together. The Census, <clears throat> excuse me, the census Bureau estimated it would take two to three years to copy and save the damaged records, but it never got the chance. The smoldering books were moved to temporary storage. Eventually, those temporary books came back to the Census Office, but the subject of restoring them did not come up again. Twelve years after the fire, so that would be the fire was, what, 1919, 12 years later, trying to add my head, anyway, early 20s, um, 
12 years after the fire and without fanfare, the chief clerk of the Census Bureau recommended destroying the surviving volumes. So, this was, anyway, so, yeah, so this guy recommends destroying all the surviving volumes. Of the nearly 63 million people enumerated on the 1890 census population schedule, only about 6,300 entries survived. That's so far less than 0.000%, right? It doesn't even register. That's the amount that survived, right? Worse yet, a backup protocol followed for previous census had just been dropped. So they had a backup plan, but they also dropped that backup plan. See how convoluted this all becomes? The 1890 census was the first for which the government didn't require copies to be filed in local government offices. So allegedly, all of these notes that people jotted down that they said are really census records, that year there was no requirement for copies to be filed in local governments. It's funny how that worked out, right? So I'm going to say what somebody else said. They said, <laughs> as sad as this story is, it could have been worse. See all these false comparisons? Yeah, you made it here alive. You could have been killed on that slave ship, right? Those concrete floors prevented the 1921 fire from spreading to the upper floors, which housed the 1790 to 1820 and 1850 to 1870 censuses. Inside the basement vault were just the, I'm sorry about that buzzing in the background, I'll deal with it before the next segment. Inside the basement vault were the 1830, 1840, 1880, 1900, and 1910 census. About half of the 1890 veteran schedule survived. So little fragments of this and that survived, right? The 1920 census was in another building entirely. So while the losses are significant, consider this. Can you imagine trying to trace your ancestors without any federal census between 1790 and 1910? Yes, that's exactly what happened. It is a nightmare to try to trace your ancestors. So, I don't know. I think the 1890 census, they said the population was 62.6 million names. And they said that not much of that survived. Um, they said that some of the states around Washington, some of the Civil War veterans, this and that survived, okay. And then they have helpful, hips, helpful tips on these sites. It says, go to Ancestry, Family Search, Find My Past, and My Heritage. So those are obviously their buddies in this DNA business. 
So, they said to go look in city directories, tax lists, state censuses, and other records created between 1880 and 1900. So, yeah, you got a, um, the 1890 census is database. Is that, and so, yeah, this stuff is just spread all over. And they have all these tips for how to try to hunt down this information to sort out what is going on. So that's about it. I'm not really convinced that these census records were ever really totally jotted down to be burned up. The story seems rather fishy to me, but we will move on from here. Okay, I have two examples of how women were enslaved in this country. That would be, excuse me, how white women were enslaved. One is from this country and the other is from Ireland. So right now in this segment, I will be talking about the American plan. What's the American plan? Well, it was originally called the Chamberman, Chamberlain, excuse me, Con Act of 1918. It was a U.S. federal law passed on July the 9th, 1918, by the 65th United States Congress. Excuse me, Marcos is snoring behind me. The law implemented a public health program that came to be known as the American Plan, whose stated goal was to combat the spread of venereal disease. An excellent example of how evil comes packaged as hell. The Chamberlain Con Act, also known as the American Plan, gave the government of the United States the power to quarantine any woman suspected of having a sexually transmitted disease, also known as an STD. A medical examination was required, and if it revealed an STD, this discovery could constitute proof of the woman being a prostitute. The purpose of this law was to prevent the spread of venereal diseases among U.S. soldiers. During World War I, the American plan authorized the military here in this country to arrest any woman within five miles of a military base. They called it a containment. So any woman within five miles was open game for the U.S. military to detain. If that woman was found infected, a woman could be sentenced to a hospital or what was called a farm colony until cured. By the end of the war, 15,520 prostitutes had been imprisoned. Most never received medical hospitalization. So, sounds to me like this was an act to detain and hold women under suspicions of the military in this country. Funny, huh? Under this law, women suspected to be prostitutes could be stopped, detained, inspected, 
and could be sent to a rehabilitation center if they failed their examinations. Any evidence of venereal disease found during one of these exams could constitute their proof of prostitution. By 1919, 30 states had constructed facilities for the purpose of detaining and treating women with venereal disease. An estimated 30,000 women were detained and examined during the war. During the course of the war, allegedly 110 red-light districts throughout America were shut down. Despite these efforts, um, what they said was um, they, they, they got them detained under this program that they had never, most people had never really heard of it, okay? And what it was was from 1910 through the 1950s and in some places into the 1960s and 1970s, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of American women were detained and forcibly examined for STDs. The program was modeled with similar ones in Europe, under which authorities stalked suspicious women, arresting, testing, and imprisoning them. If the women tested positive, well, positive according to some sketchy results, right? Okay, if the women tested positive, officials locked them away in penal institutions with no due process. While many records of the program have since been destroyed, women's forced internment could range from a few days to a few months. Inside these institutions, records show the women were often injected with mercury and forced to ingest arsenic-based drugs, the most common treatments at the time for syphilis. If they misbehaved or if they failed to show proper ladylike deference, these women could be beaten, doused with cold water, thrown into solitary confinement, or even sterilized. It was to blame these women for infecting the troops. The American plan began during World War I as a result of a federal push to prevent soldiers and sailors from contracting STDs. In 1917, federal officials were horrified to learn that a huge percentage of men in the military, some erroneously estimated one in three, were infected with syphilis or gonorrhea. Suddenly, these diseases presented not only a health threat, but a national security threat as well. So officials passed this federal law that outlaw sex work within a five-mile moral zone of every military training camp in the United States. When they learned that most infected soldiers and sailors actually contracted their STDs back in their hometowns, they worked to expand this prohibition to cover the entire nation. And when they discovered that most of the women who supposedly infected the men weren't professional prostitutes, they expanded the program even further. So beginning in 1918, federal officials began pushing every state in the nation to pass a model law 
which enabled officials to forcibly examine any person reasonably suspected of having an STD. Under this stature, those who tested positive for an STD could be held in detention for as long as it took to render him or her non-infectious. On paper, the law was general neutral. In practice, it almost exclusively focused on regulating women and their bodies. Enforcement of the American plan ended by the 1970s amid the rise of the Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Live Movement, and the Sex Workers' Right Movement. It had, <coughs> excuse me, it had lasted in many places for half a century. But today, half a century later, few people have heard of it. Even fewer are aware that the American plan laws, the ones passed in the late 1910s, enabled officials to examine people merely reasonably suspected of having these diseases, are still on the books and in some form in every state of the nation. Nothing has changed as American plan it enforcement globally here ended in the 1970s, but it is still, in fact, on the books. Some of these laws have been altered or amended, and some have been absorbed into broader public health statutes. But each state still has the power to examine reasonably suspected people and isolate the infected ones if health officials deem such isolation necessary. So that was the United States. I took a sampling of what was going on in Ireland because Ireland has a large influx of people that essentially got tricked into coming to this country. So Ireland is next. Okay, in this segment, I am going to talk about the things that I found in Ireland. Ireland, Ireland, Ireland. A lot of people from there got tricked. There was this thing called the Magdalene Movement. It first took hold in the 18th century. It was a campaign to put fallen women to work and it was supported by both the Catholic and Protestant churches. It entailed women serving short terms inside the asylums with the goal of rehabilitation. Over the years, however, the Magdalene laundries, named for the biblical figure Mary Magdalene, became primarily Catholic institutions, and the stents grew longer and longer. Women sent there were often charged with redeeming themselves through lace-making, needlework, or doing laundry. Though most residents had not been convicted of any crime, conditions inside were prison-like. And they have a first-person story here, I'll tell. Redemptions might sometimes involve a variety of corrective measures, including shaven heads, 
institutional uniforms, bread and water diets, restricted visiting, supervised correspondence, solitary confinement, confinement, and even flogging. Ireland's first such institution, the Magdalene Asylum for Penitent Females in Dublin, was founded by the Protestant Church of Ireland in 1765. At the time, there was a concern that prostitution in Irish cities was on the rise and that wayward women who had been seduced and had sex outside of marriage or gotten pregnant out of wedlock were susceptible to becoming prostitutes. Soon parents began to send their unmarried daughters to the institutions to hide their pregnancies. Initially, a majority of women entered the institutions voluntarily and served out multi-year term in which they learned a respectable profession. The idea was that they'd employ these skills to earn money after being released. Their work supported the institutions while they were there. But over time, the institutions became more like prisons, with many different groups of women being routed through the system sometimes by the Irish government. There were inmates imported from psychiatric institutions and jails, women with special needs, victims of rape and sexual assault, pregnant teenagers were sent there by their parents, and girls deemed too flirtatious or tempting to men were also sent there. Others were there for no obvious reason. Though the institutions were run by Catholic orders, they were supported by the Irish government, which funneled money toward the system in exchange for laundry services. Nuns ruled the laundries with impunity, sometimes beating inmates and enforcing strict rules of silence. You didn't know when the next beating was to come, said survivor Mary Smith in an oral history. Smith was incarcerated in the Sunday's Well Laundry in Cork, Ireland, after being raped. Nuns told her it was in case she got pregnant. Once there, she was forced to cut her hair and take on a new name. She was not allowed to talk and was assigned backbreaking work in the laundry, where nuns regularly beat her for minor infractions and forced her to sleep in the cold. Due to the trauma she suffered, and this is her first-hand report, which I do believe is very likely true, Smith doesn't remember exactly how long she spent in Sunday's well. To me, it felt like my lifetime, she said. Smith wasn't alone. Often, women's names were stripped from them. They were referred to by numbers or as child or penitent. Some inmates, often orphans or victims of rape or abuse, stayed there for a lifetime. Others escaped and were brought back to the institutions. Another survivor, Marina Gambold, was placed in a laundry by her local priest. She recalls being forced to eat off the floor after breaking a cup and getting locked outside in the cold for a minor infraction. 
I was working in the laundry from 8 in the morning until about 6 in the evening, she told. I was starving with the hunger. I was given bread and drippings for my breakfast. Some pregnant women were transferred from these facilities to homes for unwed mothers, where they bore and temporarily lived with their babies and worked in conditions similar to those in the laundries. Babies were usually taken from their mothers and handed over to other families. In one of the most notorious homes, the bond sector's mother and baby home in Tuam, scores of babies died. In 2014, they found remains of at least 796 babies they were found in a septic tank in the home's yard. The facility has been investigated. Yeah, we'll never know. How did such an abusive system endure for 231 years in Ireland? Good question. To start with, any talk of harsh treatment at the Magdalene laundries and mothers' homes tended to be dismissed by the public since the institutions were run by religious orders. Survivors were told what they had been through were often shamed or ignored. So, excuse me, survivors who told people what they were been through were shamed or ignored. People turning on other people. Kind of a big pattern through history, I'd say. Other women were too embarrassed to talk about their past and never told anyone about their experiences. This is the same thing about those orphan trains. Make everybody think it just happened to them. <clears throat> Silence, shame them, and abuse them. Details on both the inmates and their lives are scant. Estimates of the number of women who went through the Irish Magdalene laundries vary, and most religious orders have refused to provide archival information for investigators and historians. I was about hiding the records or burning the records, right? Up to 300,000 women are thought to have passed through the laundries in total, at least 10,000 of them since 1922. But despite a large number of survivors, the, la the laundries went unchallenged until the 1990s, okay? Then the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity decided to sell some of its land in 1992. They applied to have 133 bodies moved from unmarked graves on the property, but the remains of 155 people were found. Well, they didn't keep any records, right? When journalists learned that only 75 death certificates existed, I'm guessing out of this 155 people, the nuns explained there had been an administrative error, Cremate, cremated all of the remains, and reburied them in another mass grave. Notice any patterns here? You make the best of each new day, you try not to be sad, even though the sky falls down upon you, call it midnight, feeling bad. When you wake up to the promise of your dream world coming true, with one less friend to call on, was it someone that I knew? Away you will go sailing in a race among the ruins, if you plan tomorrow do it soon 
magic of the moment were mysteriously undone. You try to understand it, but you never seem to find any kind of freedom coming clean. It's just another state of mind. When you wake up to the promise of your dream world coming true, with one less friend to call on, was it someone that I knew? Away you will go sailing in a race among the ruins. If you plan to face tomorrow, do it soon. So take the best of all that's left You know this cannot last Even though your mother was your maker From her apron strings you pass Just think about the fool Who by his virtue can be found In a most unusual situation Playing jester to the clown When you wake up to the promise Of your dream world coming true one less friend to call on Was it someone that I knew? Away we'll go sailing In a race among the ruins If you plan to face tomorrow Do it soon And you wake up to the promise Of the dream world coming true Okay, this One segment is going to be about who, in general, came in through New Orleans? And also a story which talks about how the black people from Africa and likely Haiti were being sold in New Orleans. I think it is highly possible, like I stated earlier, that people in the European countries paid for their passage to come here. It's possible the people from the African countries paid for their passage by being sold out to these plantations. Kind of a loose, simplistic example, but it's where my thinking is right now. So what group of immigrants came to Louisiana in the 1800s? The French brought indentured servants and convicts into Louisiana. Louisiana received many Irish immigrants from early years of settlement, and especially throughout much of the 19th century. New, New Orleans was a port of entry for mass immigration. An estimated 550,000 immigrants passed through the port of New Orleans between 1820 and 1860, making it the second largest port of entry in the United States by 1837. In fact, throughout the antebellum period, New Orleans drew more immigration than the ports of Boston, Philadelphia, or Baltimore. So who exactly do they say came into New Orleans? Italians have a rich history in New Orleans. The majority of Italian immigrants in New Orleans were from Sicily and started to arrive in large numbers in the 1880s to escape a homeland that had fallen into corrupt, dangerous, and unlawful state. Where did the Louisiana Creole people come from? 
there, there's this group called the Louisiana Creole, C-R-E-O-L-E. That is a French-based vernacular language that developed on the sugarcane plantations of what are now southwestern Louisiana and the Mississippi Delta. Those were areas that were primarily, supposedly, French colonies. So, why did immigrants go to New Orleans? Immigrants typically driven out of their homeland by the potato famine in Ireland, they started arriving in significant numbers from Ireland between 1820 and the 1840s. Irish immigrants also found cheap passage to New Orleans because cotton ships uploading in Liverpool filled their loads with human ballast for the return trip. So they shipped the cotton from here to Liverpool. This doesn't involve a whole lot of ports, okay? We're talking about a pretty small operation here. So the boats going into Liverpool with all this cotton which came out of New Orleans ports, they filled the holes, holes of those boats with people for the return trip. Because a heavy substance such as rocks or water placed in such a way to improve stability and control of the ships on their return back. Though they're typically called deadhead trips, right? Something that gives stability. So, in fact, these people gave stability to those boats on their way back to this country. So, that's how that worked. Who owned the Port of New Orleans in the beginning? Well, France ceded the unprofitable Port of New Orleans together with the Louisiana Territory west of the Mississippi River to Spain in 1763 under the Treaty of Paris. Despite initial rebellion, the Port of New Orleans prospered under Spanish rule. Then I was looking into the passenger list, like, who are these people that were on these boats, right? Did anybody jot down any notes? Well, <laughs> maybe. Where did the New Orleans passenger list come from? The New Orleans passenger list provides information about all passengers who entered the Port of New Orleans between 1846 and 1851 from England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and other countries. A time of tremendous immigration to America. These records correspond to a period of the Great Irish Famine. So, the ships first started arriving, and um, they say they started arriving between 1820 and 1850. And did they jot down any notes, okay? Starting in 1820, U.S. law required that captains of vessels from a foreign country arriving in U.S. ports provide lists of passengers abroad. So, if you want to look, they allegedly have some lists, but I have some more information here in this story about early slave selling. Okay, so we'll get to that. And that kind of wanders into this what happened to the list business. <laughs> Those elusive lists of names, right? So, there was this guy named Isaac Franklin, okay? He was waiting for the slave ship 
called the United States near the New Orleans Wars in October of 1828. Isaac Franklin may have paused to consider how the city had changed since he had first seen it from a flat flat boat deck 20 years earlier. So in 1828, Isaac Franklin is wondering what happened over the last 20 years. The New Orleans at Franklin, one of the biggest slave traders of the earliest 19th century, he saw and housed more than 45,000 people and was the fifth largest city. So this guy's looking, this is kind of a confusing story, but he's looking out and he sees that, wow, he's thinking about the last 20 years. They've moved more than 45,000 people, okay? Its residents one in every three of whom was enslaved, had burst well beyond its original boundaries and extended themselves in suburbs carved out of low-flying former plantations along the river. Everywhere I look, they're always talking about these explosions of people all over the place, but nobody ever seems to really have a clue about a lot of details. So I'm just trying to tell you what I kind of have gleaned (laughs) that what might be reality, okay? They said that coming and going from the forest were beef and pork and lard, buffalo robes and beer hides and deer skins, lumber and lime, tobacco and flour and corn. It was the cotton bales and hogsheads of sugar. So this was all the stuff that he was envisioning that they had sold during that time, okay? Cotton exports from New Orleans increased more than sevenfold in the 1820s. So um, the amount, by the end of the decade, to more than 100 million pounds of cotton, and half of the cotton produced in the entire country. Nearly all of Louisiana's sugar, meanwhile, left the state through New Orleans, and the holes of more and more ships filled with the number of sugar plantations tripled. So the sugar plantations tripled, supposedly, in the 1820s. So this made Louisiana a very, very busy port indeed. So you have to kind of calculate here, and read between the lines a bit, right? They're sending all these ships over to England and probably Germany. Well, who's coming back on these boats? Well, people. People. Lots of people. Um... The city of New Orleans was the largest slave market in the United States, ultimately serving as a site for the purchase and sale of more than 135,000 people. That, of course, they know it, right? In 1808, Congress exercised its constitutional prerogative to end the legal importation of enslaved people from outside the United States. So 1808, slavery's over, right? In an effort to prevent smuggling, the 1808 federal law banning slave imports from overseas mandated that captains of domestic coastal slavery create a manifest listing the name, sex, age, height, and skin color of every enslaved person they carried along. And they also wanted the names of the shippers, the people, and also where their places of residence would be. One copy of the manifest had to be deposited with the collector of the port of departure, who checked it for accuracy and certified 
that the captain and the ships swore that every person listed was legally enslaved and had not come into the country after January 1808. This is so confusing. Basically, what they're saying is they then left it up to the boat captains to write this stuff down. Jot down some more notes, okay? Write down some names. A second copy got delivered to the customs official at the point of arrival. Who checked it again before permitting the enslaved to be unloaded? Well, the bureaucracy would not be rushed. So, yeah, they supposedly wrote records when they loaded the boats up. They supposedly told people when they loaded the boats down. And, well, just a mystery. It all got missing. So, at the customs house in Alexandria, this deputy collector Chapman had signed off the manifest of the boat called the United States. A boarding official named this Taylor guy, and he looked over the manifest, made sure it had the proper signatures, and matched each enslaved person to his or her listing. Finding the lot agreeing with the description, Taylor sent the US, United States ship on its way. The boat was called the United States, just so that's not part's not confusing. Exactly where Franklin put the people from the United States once he'd led them away from the levee is unclear. Like most of his colleagues, Franklin probably rented space in a yard, a pen, or a jail to keep the enslaved in while he worked nearby. He may have done business from a hotel, a tavern, or an establishment known as a coffee house which is where much of the city's slave trade was conducted in the 1820s. Kind of an interesting process, right? Not many notes got jotted down. Serving as bars, restaurants, gambling houses, pool halls, meeting spaces, auction blocks, and venues for economic transactions of all sorts, coffee houses sometimes also had lodging and stabling facilities. They were often known simply as exchanges, reflecting the commercial nature of what went on inside. And itinerant slave traders used them to receive their mail, talk about prices of cotton and sugar and humans, locate customers, and otherwise they were offices for networking and socializing. So they essentially had a little hub, and that hub included people who were dealing in people, sugar, anything else they were selling. They went on to say, they said, We rarely know what Franklin's customers did with the people they dispersed across southern Louisiana. Buyers of single individuals probably intended them for domestic ser servants or as laborers in their place of business. Many others probably put the enslaved they bought to work in the sugar industry. Notice how vague all this is? Few other purposes explain why sugar refiners would purchase this, this sugar refiner named Nathan Goodale. He purchased a lot of ten boys and men. Or why did this Christopher person from this parish, why did he buy these other teenagers? nobody knows. Evidently, nobody jotted it down, right? Franklin mostly cared that he walked away richer from the deals, and there was no denying that. Gross sales in New Orleans in 1828 for the slave trading company known as Franklin and Armfeld 
came to a bit more than $56,000. That would have been in 1828. The two partners, Amesfield and that other creep, Franklin and Armsfield, we're going to be talking about here, just so we don't get confused. Few of John Armfield's purchasing records have survived. Making a precise tally of the co company's profits impossible. But several scholars estimate that slave traders in the late 1820s and early 1830s saw returns in the average of 20 to 30 percent, which would put Franklin and Armfield's earnings for the last two months of 1828 somewhere between 11,000 and 17,000 equivalent to 300,000 to 450,000 today. The figure does not include proceeds. Oh, this is just somebody just guessing, right? Because these, this, uh, Franklin and Orangefield people evidently had a bunch of places where they sold and took care of people. Okay, so they, um, they, they said all oh, these Franklin and Armsville didn't think much about people. They didn't have much of a conscience. Well, I don't think anybody in this entire picture has a conscience, so I'm not going to focus too heavily on these two creeps. Okay. They also went to interpret what Franklin and Armfield felt. They understood that black people were human beings. They just did not care. Basic decency was something they really owed only to white people. And when it came down to it, Black people's lives did not matter all that much. Black lives were there for the taking. Their world cast its long shadow onto ours. Yes, what a history, right? Black and white slaves. Everybody is a slave in some significant way, and this country is the way it goes. So, I had something else about the history of these slaves that I'll try to fit in here somewhere. Um... Because many histories in New Orleans are passed down orally. They often aren't captured in textbooks or assessed on standardized tests. So this was a history of what they were doing to the black children that landed there. So um, they basically did a bunch of horrible things. Um, Although Europeans chose a spot to establish the city of New Orleans in 1718, they lacked, they lacked the skill and technology to, to survive in the unfamiliar territory. The colonists would have starved if it weren't for African labor and technology. Yeah, um, one of the most immediate repercussions of the immigration from Haiti was the revolutionary spirit in the hearts of enslaved Haitians. Yeah, um, they had a big uprising in 1811, a big revolt. Um, a little bit too graphic to get into right here because I don't really even believe it. Um, yeah, it's always about revolt. They're doing the exact same thing now. They're saying nobody wants to work because they don't want to work for these wages. So they're saying, oh, it's just crazy. Time and time again, the exact same kind of patterns. Okay. Um, this one guy became the first black guy to make money in 1860. Everything's about money. What would people do if they didn't sit around and think about money all day long? I just don't have a clue. Um, 1841, they founded the first black church in Louisiana, the first black Catholic school, 
And New Orleans was annexed in 1874 after the Civil War. The social status of this population became the same as that of formerly enslaved black people. Some lamented this loss of social superiority and showed prejudice against the freedmen and their descendants. Once again, they got the slaves here, they got them to do all the work, and then, of course, they were no good to talk to in the end, right? They're always nice to you when they want something. Why don't people see that basic function there? It has to come packaged as help. No one just walks up and punches you in the head the minute they meet you. They have to get you closer and lulled into a sense of, stupidity and start taking those stupid pills and then punching us in the head became much easier so i don't know there's just a lot here the um 1842 the sisters of the holy family um yeah i don't believe some of these other stories i'm not going to bother with them so the first black guy supposedly to become wealthy was 1870 his fortune made him the richest black person in the united states so he opened the first coffee stand in New Orleans. I guess that's different than the other coffee shops where they hung around to cook this stuff up. So he was an inspiration to others. They always have to set somebody up as an inspiration, right? Um, re reconstruction in New Orleans was unlike anywhere else in the South. Black New Orleans made great gains in equality with many institutions seeing integrations at levels higher than anywhere else. So yeah, this guy makes it big in 1870, then things were moving along again, right? But then things happen. In 1900, the school board in New Orleans decided to end education for black children at the fifth grade. This was a huge setback for the black community but they got organized and worked hard to win back grades six, seven, and eight by 1909. So yeah, they just pushed them out of the schools once they got the labor that they needed. I I'm, I'm know that I'm oversimplifying this, but this is a long, long, dreadful, dreadful story. So um, there was only in the first city's black high school 1880. It remained the only such high school in New Orleans until 1942. So yeah, I mean, what are they doing now? They have completely cut the education for all kids in this country now. So nothing changes and everything has stayed the same in this deal or so. That is how it appears to me. And next I have some other interesting things about how people were transported around. Okay, this is going to be the final segment. So let me give you a couple of parting thoughts here with this slavery business and then conclude where my future direction is going. As of April, I will have been doing this social media sharing of my research for five years now. So hard to believe, right? 
So let me conclude with a few loose ends that were important to deal with in this issue of slavery. And thank you for following along with me here. So by 1860, the U.S. Census Bureaus, of course, if we can trust them, right, suggest that 1.2 million slaves were concentrated in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Immigration to the southern colonies consisted of a disappropriated number of British, French, and Spanish aristocrats and poor indentured servants from Europe. In fact, 60% of the nation's wealthiest were located in that area, but only 30% of its free population lived in the South. Gradually, as Southern labor markets market economy, excuse me, let me start over. Gradually, as Southern labor markets economic and social development stagnated and became increasingly isolated from Western transportation routes, there were fewer jobs and competition between immigrants and U.S. natives became fierce. So, as of 1860, things started to make kind of a turn against the early settlers. Consequently, with little economic pull for new immigrants, the region did not experience much of the large-scale U.S. immigration that occurred in the late 1800s and early 1900s, so that area was pretty well wrapped up by then. Louisiana, located on the mouth of the Mississippi River, the port had been a center for international trade since 1718, when it was founded by the French. Since then, the port known as the Gateway to the Americas has been a strong source of economic vitality. Seeking to replace African-American laborers with European peasants, and planters in the late 19th century recruited Italian farmers, mainly from Sicily. In the region, even though forced labor and disease took its toll, many of these immigrants were able to save enough to buy land and permanently settle. In Mississippi and Alabama, and to some extent in Louisiana, foreign-born Germans have been highly represented since early in the colonial period. From the German coast villages in Louisiana or in the present day, the scattered owners of plantations throughout the Gulf Coast states, German immigrants have long had a presence in the region. Eventually, the geographic proximity of German migrants and the Acadians led to intermarriage, so many of the people in the region became known as German Cajuns in Louisiana, okay? To this day, Germany remains among the top immigrant-sending nations for Mississippi and Alabama. German military families retire in the Gulf Coast areas, and the German-American Society of the Gulf Coast promotes strong connections by sponsoring an annual Oktoberfest. And then also there's lots of um, handed down stories about all of the blacks that also settled in Appalachia. So this all was happening, all this slavery stuff, 
I last left off with the age of reason and all of that. Well, the reason I'm pointing out Germany right now is because I started out looking into Tavistock, okay? And then that got me into looking at the age of reason. And I'm still looking at the age of enlightenment. And that will all shift now because my entire research has shifted in the last week by knowing more who they are, okay? So because every corner I turn leads to more details. Did the people in Africa get sent here to cover because the ones in charge originally had black skin? Big question, right? Was it to blend in? So then they also tossed in the American Indians and the cowboy stories? Loads of questions. White Europeans coming in via the East and boatloads of blacks? And then later, very poor, desperate people coming in via New Orleans. You'll notice the first groups of people coming in through New Orleans were the black populations out of Africa and likely Haiti. Okay, So then the boats started bringing in loads of desperate people from Ireland and other countries who were facing severe issues. Another thing that happened during this time in this census taking is that the reason that I believe another reason that the census taking was not really well executed very well right because in the early days they sent around marshals like official cops and stuff to do the early census taking so one has to wonder how skewed could data get if you're an immigrant here you don't really know why you're here you don't speak the language and a cop shows up at the door and wants to ask you questions so I feel like personally the census has been kind of a disaster since the very beginning, but this is just my personal opinion. Now, while I have you here, I moved from YouTube to not be in a state of wondering if the next show would be taken down. And I also had a personal need to get away from social media. <laughs> I was doing my work on social media. It will be five years this April. That was enough for me, okay? So when I moved from YouTube, there were several reasons. The other reason was that in the future, audio would be easier for people to download versus video. So that was compiled with my thinking about getting away from social media. So that was what I was thinking at the time. And this was only a couple months ago because at the time, I was basing it where my research was going back then. So I thought, well, on audio, I would also be cutting my expenses because I would only be doing a few shows per month. Well, this has all changed, okay? I am now totally engaged in a bunch of research that I'm very glad to be doing. So I'm certainly not complaining about any increase in work. But that original plan, as it turns out, is a very bad plan for the sake of my research. I need to be able to turn the microphone on and both be free of censorship of what I have to say and free to say all that I know when I want to say it. I cannot and I will not limit how many shows and pile up work for later. Originally, I thought, well, I will just record shows, and as the money avails itself to produce those shows, then I will release them. 
That was a plan for then, but not a plan for now. Way too much work involved to start recording shows that I may or may not release. Either I turn on the microphone and I roll along, I'm only looking at a base level a budget of around four to five hundred dollars per month. Very low amount. So I have to tell myself I will remain neutral in what people decide to do. I have muddled along all of this time and made things happen. A lot has changed for me personally in the last five years. But I also have a lot of things to still figure out that need my attention. I am more than happy to share what I know and keep things up to date. But I will not ever beg or plead for that to happen. If I raise the money that I need each month to operate, I will turn the microphone on and I will keep going because I will not become a begging fundraising machine and it's as simple as that. Either people offer to support out of their own free will or that is just the way it goes. I will remain up to what other people decide what they want to do. My plan all along has been to figure this out. I still have work to do. I've got all those embryos to look into. As it turns out, Facebook is the distribution point for embryos. Yeah, Facebook. Embryos. Everything embryos being run out of Facebook. All those poor children and lots of things are going on there. It is so out of control with these embryos that, um, well... They're implanting embryos without testing them because there is a rush to get these embryos implanted. And a lot of these embryos are not healthy children, okay? So a lot of the slave trade business is also going on right now. So I am out of options. I do not want to end on this note, but I want to be crystal, crystal clear. If it is meant to work out, people will find a way to support this work so I can share my research. I really hope you hear me clearly and understand that this has been going on for five years with me sharing my research on social media. But five years has been a very long time. I refuse to work within the money scope that they have set up. They have money tied to magic. So help is voluntary. If it comes in, I'll plug in the microphone and catch up to date and continue this story. It's a wild wild story. I have learned so much about this so far. I've uncovered things about my own family and all of this. Everything has a purpose. People will have to decide if my voice and thoughts are something they want to continue hearing from. It would be a shame that I can be silenced for this amount, but I have decided that no matter what, I will keep moving along. That is what my plan is. When I started this research sharing online five years ago, I started it because after I wrote my book, I was offered, I had two offers to sell the rights to my book to turn it into a podcast. Well, I didn't do it. Why didn't I do it? Well, because it didn't make any sense to me, okay? And now that I know more, selling my rights when my book came out, I don't know, six or seven years ago, would have been a disaster. Because how long do you think they would have kept me along once I stepped over some of these wires here, okay? I would have been owned by them. Now, at the time, no one knew why I would turn down this illustrious offer for all this cash and money. Well, 
As it turns out, my instincts were correct. It was the right move to make. So through all of that, I decided to do a podcast on my own, right? That is where I came up with the idea because somebody offered to buy my book rights to turn that into a podcast. And it became very misunderstood because people could not understand why would I have turned down that deal? Well, I'm not going to go into all the reasons, but it was a good move on my part, okay? So rolling forward, there's a lot of misperceptions about what I have been doing with my work. And it's actually quite simple, okay? When I turned down the book deals, I decided what can be so hard about doing a podcast? (laughs) I was all set to go away at the end of 2019. I was going to take a two-month break, and when I returned, my plan was to go away. I wanted to come back when I was rested and tell people that my research would stay online, but I was no longer going to be sharing my research. Well, when I was supposedly away resting, I discovered what was coming ahead with all of this with this fake virus, okay? So when I returned in January of 2020, I decided on my own free will that I would keep doing more research online because I was convinced that if I just showed people one more show, one more way, that they would see how terribly surrounded we were by psychopaths. Now, I have no regrets for anything that I have done, but that was two years ago, okay? And I struggled to keep all this alive through all that time. That is in the past, okay? Moving forward, this is the only way this will work because I now have better dates to work with. I now am 99.9% sure who these people are. I want to get rolling with my research. I am not going to be restricted by thinking of, well, can I do a show today? Is there money in the account? None of that is going to be on my radar moving forward. That is what they set up to manage us by money. I will not be managed by money. I will continue my research, and if people want to hear about my research, then everybody has free will, okay? I feel like that the truth has evaded us for this long. Looking is very important for me. Looking the other way got us here. So I think that everybody has to make their own decisions. I have resisted even trying to tell people to subscribe to channels and click bells, okay? So it goes beyond what I'm willing to do to be asking people to do anything. So support is completely voluntary. I am not looking for anybody to do anything that I tell them to do. You need to make your own decisions. I've never once said take a vaccine or don't take a vaccine. I'm just here sharing my research as I go along. And I am very thankful for the time that I've had to share my research. And I appreciate all of you for taking the time to listen. I know it's probably been a lot to listen to. I've tried to keep it so it's not as horrific as it really is. But really, the truth is out there. We just need to listen. Invite silence into your life and listen. We never lost our connection. We just let it get snipped a bit, okay? Never forget it is all out there for all of us. Just listen. But this decision does not rest just on me. 
You need to do what you need to do. I appreciate the time we've had together, but my situation has changed drastically in the last five years, to put it mildly. Five years ago, I thought I would finish up this life learning how to tap dance. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> I always told myself that when I got older, I wanted to learn how to tap dance. Well, that hasn't really exactly worked out, right? But in the meantime, I won't spend my time begging for help. We can do all do what we want. That's the beauty of free will. I personally will not stop until I figure this out. So I really appreciate you tuning in and letting me into your life. And I hope we can work this out. But that's all I'm going to have to say. I don't have to keep going on here. The song you're going to hear is from Credence Clearwater Revival. They were pretty big in 1969. As a matter of fact, um, they actually kind of beat out the, the Beatles in one of those years. 1969, that was the year I graduated from high school. 53 years ago. 53 years ago, right? We were sitting around smoking weed. We had no idea what the song really meant. I know what it means to me now, but I try not to over-explain songs, so you'll have to listen for yourself. In the meantime, goodbye for now, and be safe out there. <laughs> 